welcome again to the Soccer Science Podcast. The podcast has been listened to by thousands of people now. We've had some really positive reviews and we're really enjoying the conversations that we're having. Thanks to everyone that listens. Thanks again to, to Rezel and to Catapult who continually sponsor this, this podcast and help us to get things on the ground. I'm sure that you'll enjoy today's episode. I've just finished having the conversation and it was fascinating. Really enjoyed the conversation. Today's podcast guest is the first team goalkeeper coach at Borussia Mönchengladbach, Fabian Otter. Now, Fabian's got a really interesting background. He's played as a goalkeeper in several different countries, but he's also got a PhD in skill acquisition. Uh, he's a real, real deep thinker in games. He's really thought about the processes around how his players can learn and how he can facilitate the best learning environment for player development and also performance. He's not only got an extensive research background, but he's got a fantastic applied background as well. He's worked with goalkeepers such as Nick Pope, obviously now at Newcastle and in the England squads, with Jan Sommer, uh, who was at Mönchengladbach until recently, and, and now with Bayern Munich. Uh, so he's got a real, real extensive understanding of the science that underpins coaching, but has also got experience of the art of coaching within uh, the elite side of the game as well, which is exactly what this podcast and, and the Soccer Science Conference was set up for, um, to, to understand the art of coaching, but underpinned by the science around it as well. In terms of the conference, the Soccer Science Conference is, is on Monday, May the 22nd at St George's Park. We've recently announced a whole lot of speakers, including uh, Russell Martin, the head coach at Swansea City, Matt Gill, his assistant. We've got the head of coaching from the FA, Tim Dipmer, the head of physical performance in Bryce Kavanagh. We've got Drew Grott and the fear coach. We've got Ben Greenall, the head of sports research at Resol. We've got Paul McGuinness after such a, an interesting conversation on the podcast that we had with him. We've got James Robry, the head of coach education at the Welsh FA. We've got John D'Souza, who's the head of coaching pathway at the Premier League. The day is hopefully going to be a fantastic one. I'm, I'm sure that the speakers that we've got will, will put on some fantastic presentations, but we've also got several more still to come and still to be announced. So if you haven't already booked your ticket, please do. Ticket sales have been really Really exciting. Uh, they they go in very quickly. We have we have a limited amount left now for this day at St George's Park on Monday, May the twenty second. We hope to see everyone there. If not, um, please keep listening to the podcast. Please like it. Please review it. Please feel free to share it among your various networks. But for now, we'll, uh, we'll head over to the conversation with Fabio. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Fabian, great to see you. Great to have you with us. Welcome to the Soccer Science Podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation, Reese. Looking forward to this one. Uh, I'm, I've, we've said it before the recording, um, but I don't mind putting this on here. I always look forward to the conversations with the people that I've been fortunate to speak to through this podcast series so far. But I'm, I'm particularly looking forward to today because you know we've been talking off off air if you like and, and there's so much crossover in, in what we do so I'm, I'm looking forward to where this conversation will go um i know you also said when we've been messaging trying to arrange this that you're modest and, and you don't want to talk about yourself too much so i'll keep this as brief as i can but I'll, I'll provide a little bit of an introduction to you um for anyone listening um and if i've got anything wrong mate feel free to jump in and, and correct me at any point but uh 
I've got down here that you played as, as, as a goalkeeper in Germany, the United States, New Zealand, England and Holland. So, so well-travelled as a, as a player. Um, one thing that's particularly interesting for us and we'll delve into today is your academic background. You've got a, a BSc and MSc and then particularly your, your PhD in skill acquisition, um, particularly in, in goalkeepers, but also around sports psychology and pedagogy of coaching. So that's something we'll certainly touch on today. In terms of your work background, former head of goalkeeping with New Zealand women national teams, uh, goalkeeper coach at Hoffenheim in Germany, first team assistant goalie coach uh, at Burnley quite recently when they were in the Premier League, and now the first team goalkeeper coach at Borussia Mönchengladbach out in the, in the Bundesliga. So a real um, real prestige of a CV there. Some of the goalkeepers you've worked with, people are recognised straight away, Nick Popes. Um, Bailey Peacock-Farrell coming through at Burnley, Jan Sommer, obviously until recently, before he's moved. And then some of your research as well. Some of your research I've, I've got written down here around specialist coaching, skill training, periodization, um, understanding how athletes learn, technology for athlete support, and also how to become your best version of a coach. So you're a young, modern, innovative coach, but there's also an awful lot of experience in there that I've, I've put as an introduction. So... Um, I hope I've got all that right. Is there anything that I should correct? Yes, yes. The the crazy journey of, of a football coach you described quite well. So um, yeah, I don't know. Like um, it probably all starts with being in New Zealand, if I'm honest. So just to make make like make this a little bit more more interesting instead of just talking about the different stations to to give a little bit more context to to how this whole journey started and why it became the way it was in the end. With, with all these different countries and clubs and cultures. So when I was in New Zealand as the women's national team goalkeeping coach, I was a very young coach. I was only experienced as a player, really. I had like bits of, of, of coaching experience here and there, but I actually just finished my, my master's degree in marketing, which you now think obviously has nothing to do with football coaching because it's, it's business related. But what I did in my studies was consumer psychology a lot. So looking at pretty much how you sell things, how the brain of customers works, how you convince people that your product is interesting, how you play with emotions. And, and obviously, over time, this marketing experience transfers really nicely into coaching because as a coach, what we do a lot is communicating, talking to players, also convincing players that certain approaches are, are more appropriate or will be more effective than others. And... Um, Back to New Zealand, the context at this, at this time was it was right after the Rio Olympics. So we had a four-year cycle starting, which meant that we didn't have any major competition coming up and we had lots of time to focus on player development. So um, a very cool environment because we had players in the training program based in Auckland, so, so a homegrown player program, where we had lots of training time every week, every day, to, to work on player development. And... New Zealand on top is a very open-minded country for cross-sharing across sports. So obviously everybody knows the All Blacks. New Zealand hockey is quite successful in the world at Olympic tournaments. The universities are quite involved in, in education, coach education, player development. And the country as a small country is very open to cross-sharing. So in my time in New Zealand, I had the chance to visit the All Blacks to, to look at what New Zealand hockey does in, in player development camps and and what really inspired me at this time was, was, for example, the All Blacks always striving to be the best they can and to constantly re-innovate themselves. So they would never like to, to have this steady progress. They always try to reinvent themselves and find new ways to keep being the best 
at what they do in, in this regard, rugby, obviously. And this, along with the university connection with, with different researchers in universities, with different skill acquisition specialists at universities, I, I really started this journey of trying to be the best coach that I can be. And this, obviously, by doing lots of lots of trial and error, mostly error, if I'm honest, in the beginning. So lots of different training environments that I tried to create. Some went totally wrong. Some were really interesting and, and the players gave good feedback about them. So we kept refining them. And obviously then studying how to coach as well. Looking at some, some research, working with, with researchers on different topics. And interestingly, at the moment, we work on a research project. And I leave this with, with you and the listeners. And we ask the question if we learn to coach or we coach to learn. And this is obviously one, let this one sink in. In the end, to, to give you the, the answer already, it's probably a little bit of both, but a very interesting one. Like, do we just learn from experience as coaches or is there also value in, in looking at research, looking at coach education and going more this formalized route of, of development? And um, in New Zealand, again, I, I've been fortunate to do both. Lots of trial and error through my coaching and lots of, of support from High Performance Sport New Zealand, from, from the Federation and so forth. And in the end of the day, the goal was then obviously to develop ways that are most effective to develop the goalkeepers that I was fortunate to work with in as little time as possible. And also to prepare them for competition, obviously, with always the game in mind, transferring what we do in training to the game. This obviously is always the key. And... Um, there's two terms really that that I try to base everything I do on is it's effectiveness and efficiency. So what we do, does it constantly lead to the aspired outcome? So we, do we have some consistency in the outcomes by finding different ways of reaching this? So are we effective? In goalkeeping terms, obviously, is the goalkeeper effective at dealing with 1v1 situations against an upcoming striker? And obviously there's different solutions to solving a 1v1, but... Um, effectiveness you can measure right does he save the ball or not does he get scored on 10 out of 10 times or not and then efficiency obviously is, is a different one which looks at are we time efficient do we use our training time in a, in a very pro progressive and effective way do we um, have energy efficiency the way players move biomechanics are they efficient in their movements and, and really looking at the process and and having those two in mind effectiveness and efficiency this is what I learned in New Zealand at this time from, from the experts was, was very, very important. And obviously, um, to now take this further, going, going to Hoffenheim, going, going to England, I think one struggle that came up over the years was that people look at yeah, sports science and, and coaches that, that maybe come from universities, young coaches as um, in Germany, they have this term laptop coach. I don't know if, if you've heard this, but, um, like often rather older coaches talk about laptop coaches and it sometimes has a negative connotation. But for me, I think this is not a negative thing to, to be able to use technology, to be able to, to use science and transfer this to coaching, but always, and this is, this is key not to underestimate experience. I think experiential knowledge from, from years and years of coaching and, and also traditional views on coaching is, is invaluable. So I would never substitute experience for, for this idea of being a laptop coach. But I guess if you can merge both together and you have this experience and obviously the, the scientific knowledge, I think this makes a very, very powerful mixture. And um, 
Yes. Yeah, so, so in the end of the day, by going through this experience in New Zealand, by by going to Hoffenheim, which is a very innovative club in terms of technology use, the the former SAP founder is is one of the owners of the Hoffenheim club. So, so Hoffenheim has great links to SAP and to new technology and innovation. So, going through this this club and and learning a lot about the use of of modern technology and and how you can improve player development. By, by being open to technology and innovation. This obviously was, was really big in my development as a coach and, and made me think different ways. And then in the end of the day, if, if you sum this up, I guess there's, there's three things that, that really matter if you, if, from my perspective, if you try to be a good developer. One, you need to be, um, and this is kind of my, my mission, I always try to be a good and approachable person. So I try to be honest, transparent, and, and build good relationships with, with the coaches that work around me, with the staff, with, with the goalkeepers, the players. And I think this is the first and foremost thing. If, you, if you're a good person, a transparent person, and you're approachable, and you build good relationships, then you can convince any player of doing anything. And then obviously, on top, you need the, the expertise, the, the skill set as a coach to, to have a process-oriented approach, to have a tactical technical framework in your head, to have a methodology of how you want to develop players, different development stages possibly. And, and if you combine the, the relationship part with, with obviously the ex expertise part of coaching, I think you have a very good mix and players will start trusting you and you start developing players. And I don't think you can go wrong then because the players will develop over time if the, if the training designs are good that you use, if the methodology is good. And they trust you and you have this relationship. And I guess this is, in the end of the day, the, the big challenge to get those together and to have a good process in place. And yeah, again, like I think um, what I said, the relational part is key. And then on top, I, I try to develop through science uh, different processes of how I want to develop players, what principles there are for training and then how players really learn. And um, interesting, which was never really my goal throughout time, this idea of coach education obviously emerged because when you work in certain contexts with players and they keep developing and then you do research on top, obviously coaches become interested in this topic and, and message you or call you and ask about different things and you start discussing and exchanging ideas. And this is how I got really into coaching education over the past years in, in different contexts, in, in context of football coaching obviously but also i've done workshops with coaches from canoeing from basketball from baseball from swimming from figure skating and so forth and there you see again that how players learn how athletes learn doesn't really depend on the sport too much because it's it's a lot about how the brain works how how players acquire skills and this cross-sharing between sports again like what i experienced in new zealand is, is so important for us coaches. So I would always encourage any coach to be very open-minded to, to exchange ideas with different sports and different coaches. And um, yeah, so this is a little bit about the journey, how, how I got to where I am right now in Germany with Borussia Mönchengladbach, looking at science a lot, but also obviously experience as a, as a very important factor of this journey. You know, there's, <clears throat> we've, we've discussed kind of pre-conversation today at, a little bit of a framework about how this conversation will go, just to give you an idea of the type of questions that we're going to talk about. But I also added the caveat in there that there might be certain tangents depending on where the conversation takes us. In, in that one answer alone, I've written down All Blacks because obviously that that certainly piques people's interest because it's a fascinating culture to want to go into. 
um, the importance of trust you spoke about as well. That that's probably another tangent we could go down. But but one of the the other questions that I wanted to ask you was around um, efficiency. You mentioned effectiveness and efficiency. Uh, how do you how do you measure efficiency? I mean, is it just as simple as outcome, or, or are there other ways that you measure that efficiency bit? Um, yes, it's an interesting one. Obviously, um, outcome is the key me metric to, to measure effectiveness and efficiency. Because in the end of the day, we are in a, especially in professional football, in a results-oriented sport. And if the goalkeeper makes more saves than conceding goals, and the team scores a goal more than the other team, quite, quite simple, you're going to get results and everything's going a positive route. But um, obviously, looking at biomechanics, you can measure efficiency, movement efficiency quite well. Then obviously individual factors are a big thing. Um, this is why personally I'm very opposed to ideal techniques because I don't think two different players can execute the same movement in the same identical way and then also not repeat this over and over. Because we know this from science that there's lots of variation in the context, that there's lots of variability in movements and um, this is for good. So um, efficiency is one where you really have to look at the individual. And again, I think biomechanical analysis is one, especially where sports like baseball are very advanced, how they measure movements, how they measure throws. You can do the same in football with kicking, obviously, with running movements. And um, I would also take efficiency into the context of our coaching. Like what I said, are we time efficient? So when we have 20 minutes, so when I have 20 minutes with my goalkeeping group and it's, it's more or less a warm-up plus minus, and then they go to the team. Am I using those 20 minutes most efficiently to prepare them for what's coming with the team, but also hopefully to develop them in a way that they see a game scenario and, and they make some decisions and they solve some problems. So um, I wouldn't only place this on the player themselves and their movements, but I would also place this on us as coaches and how we use our time. And if our training designs are efficient, that they also maybe look at different topics within the football game not just one one movement solution, one technique, rather like a game situation that requires different solutions. A lot of what you've, you've spoken about already, it sums up the purpose for soccer science, to be honest. So uh, over, over kind of the journey that I've had, I've sat in certain um, conferences and, and coach education seminars, things like that, that have been purely, purely the football. I've also sat in some seminars that have been purely the science and, and it's it's too many numbers and I think how does this translate to the real practical world of where we're going to work every day in football so soccer science the purpose is is the art of coaching but then underpinned by science which is everything that, that you've just just spoken about there and one of the the first questions that I'll kind of take you down if you don't mind is we've seen a, a big growth here um, in specialist coaching um, over recent years it's an area You've conducted some of your research in as well as living it every single day, which I think is really important. Do you think, in your opinion, that there will be a continued growth in this area? Um, and then also, how do you see coaching staffs being built going forwards in terms of skill sets of individuals around that that head coach and manager? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, first first and foremost, like like yourself, I'm, I'm a coach. And obviously, what do you say? The science part goes along with coaching, but coaching is the main focus. So, so all we've tried to do with the studies in the past was to make it transferable to real-world coaching. And, and yeah, I try to apply everything I, I research into my own work because I want to have the benefit of, of what I study and translate this to, to coaching my, my goalkeepers in the best, best possible way. So um, I think this is key. 
in terms of specialist coaching, my personal opinion is that it will keep growing because I think more and more clubs will start seeing the value in in working very individualized. Because um, for one, obviously, it's it's a, a resource and money thing. Clubs at the professional level, especially in England, have lots of resources and every half percent that you gain, every margin that you gain to develop players can increase the value of a player enormously. So there's a business perspective on on developing individual players and young players even more effectively for sure. But then also from a coaching perspective, from a head coaching perspective, I firmly believe that if the individual players are becoming better problem solvers, becoming more adaptable to changing environments, become become better individually at, at solving problems, at taking on 1v1 situations, creating 2v1 situations, and, and really dealing with this microscope pictures of a football game better, the overall team will perform better. So I think from a club perspective, individualization will become more and more important because of the business aspect and obviously transferring players to the first team environment in your own club, hopefully. But also from a coaching perspective, if the individual gets better, the team will get better. So staffs, I think, will keep growing. Then obviously, and I don't mean this in a good or bad way, you have to obviously be mindful how much the, club, the staff will grow so that communication paths don't become really diluted and people work into different directions and there's still this transdisciplinary crossover between departments and you have to be very mindful of this. The bigger the staff gets, the more communication routes you have and the more mindful you have to be of this. But having more individual coaches, individualization coaches in your department, I think is, is a big, big benefit. So personally, I hope and I think this will keep growing. And in your experience then of, of being on the coalface of working at top, top level, Premier League, Bundesliga, what are your best environments that you've either seen um, and you might have seen them yourself, or, or what are the environments that you think would be best designed to incorporate team performance? As you say, it's a result-based business. We need to win games. We can create a fantastic development background, um, sorry, development environment. But if the team's not winning games, we won't get very long to continue that environment. What's the best in- environment that you've seen that incorporates team performance, but then also developing the individual player as well? So it's... Um... Obviously, talking as a goalkeeping coach now, my environment is probably the one that is most easily laid out towards individualization. I have three or four goalkeepers. When when we have when we start our training, let's say I have 30, 40 minutes time with the goalkeepers. This is 30 to 40 minutes of individualized training. Because with three players, I can be very targeted towards individual players. And one goalkeeper may may get more repetition of this, this sort of area, another one of that. And, and we can be very targeted. So goalkeeper training, I think, is probably, and you said this before we started recording, it's probably how it all originated, this idea of individualized coaching. Because at some point, someone said goalkeepers need a specific, specific coach because it's a different position. So we need to implement a specialist coach into their, into their training. What I've actually in New Zealand really liked was... Um, Instead of having the whole team warming up together, which is the norm, I think, in Europe, in, in most environments, why not split up the group into different subgroups and they they do their individual warm-ups and work on different areas that are more targeted towards their needs? The centre-backs may do certain passing passing exercises. The, the strikers may do different, different running situations and, and incorporate this into the warm-up. 
And then the second thing that we used in New Zealand a lot was, we call it IPP time, individual performance plan time. So every player together with the coaches developed a, yeah, like a goal, obviously a goal and a, and a set plan, which was called IPP plan, also individual performance plan. And they had to set up their own goals, what they want to develop on. And after, after every training, there was, let's say, 20 minutes IPP time. So players had to organize themselves and, and come up in little groups working on, on whatever they, they set up as their goals, their, their development goals. So within a session of, let's say, 90 to, to 120 minutes in New Zealand, we had a warm-up, which was very individualized for different player groups. And then we had this IPP time towards the end. So, so of those 120 minutes, 40 minutes was very individualized coaching and the rest was team train, team training where you could work on, on more big, big picture things, tactical elements. And um, I really like this approach. And like I said, goalkeeping, goalkeeper coaching is going into this route, obviously a lot because I have lots of time with the goalkeepers individually. And I would think that this could transfer quite nicely to, to any football environment. So the, the unit you've answered my next question really around the, the benefits of a, of a unit-specific programme and, and allocating time for that because players are getting more repetition of the actions that they're going to come up with um, in, in the game moments. One question I've got for you is, is every club I've been at, every club I've ever been at, I see goalkeeper coaches that are fantastic at hitting volleys at the their goalkeepers, that the goalkeepers are sometimes fantastic finishers, but obviously not as good as the strikers. So as... Is part of your program um, to incorporate the, the centre forwards and the type of finishing that they need to work on, or perhaps patterns in the team in certain areas, and then giving your goalkeepers a realism as well in terms of the the shots and the standard of, of finish that they're gonna they're gonna face as well. Do you have you done a lot of that of linking with the forwards for your for your own sessions? I've definitely tried to do this a lot in the past. On sometimes in a way that obviously the the goalkeeping coach can take players into the training and try to tailor the training environment towards the different position, positions that are there. Maybe you have a fullback, two strikers, and your set of goalkeepers, and you can create a crossing and finishing exercise which which will benefit all, play, benefit all players. Sometimes it's it's going the other route that I when we talk about training and we plan the training session as a coaching staff, that the head coach talks about certain exercises which which fit into the overall topic of the training day. And I know exactly what the team will do. So I prepare the goalkeepers for what they will experience in team training. So so looking at it from a different perspective. So instead of me taking players into my training, I prepare the goalkeepers to go into team training, knowing exactly what's going to happen to them in the team environment and, and what certain areas they will work on on that day. So I think there's different routes of doing it. But certainly it's beneficial to to incorporate the different units and, and connect them in training, for sure. You've touched on it already yourself around player learning and, and player learning styles and, and different methods for learning. Um, I'll ask a bit of um, a basic open question, if you like, but I'm sure with your, your expertise and the research you've done in it, you might be able to deliver an answer with, hopefully with a bit more detail than what my question will, will, will include. Um, but obviously we're talking about a group of players, 25 to 30 players, all different personalities, all different backgrounds, all different cultures. Um, can you just elaborate a little bit on different learning styles, the science behind how the brain learns and retains information? Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the floor is yours on that one, really, because I think this is an area where, where football 
hasn't really, I think it's tr started to, to understand this, but it hasn't completely understood this yet. Um, and I think it will probably be the next frontier for, for player development. So if you can give us as much of an insight into that as possible, if yeah. I make a question clear enough, then please do. There's obviously this is a massive question, and um, if you if you look at the science, there's obviously different scientific views on on how players learn. There's a cognitive view, which talks a lot about memory and and brain functions and processing of information. Then there is an ecological view, which talks a lot about the player environment relationship. So how the context that you place players in in training and in games matters as much as the player, the individual factors and constraints that each player has, which makes each player individual and different. And um, my research goes a lot into this ecological approach. And this is why I think context is a key word. And um, when we talk about traditional coaching, especially technical training, if we, if we say it this way, we often talk about techniques, right? In training techniques and repeating techniques. And from this scientific view, Techniques do not happen in a vacuum. In a game, there's always a context. And any movement I do in a game is context-dependent based on my opponents, the ball, the areas that I can exploit, the match plan, my teammates, um, the score, the weather conditions, and so forth. So there's lots of constraints that inform the context that we work in and that change the information that I perceive. And um, I think what I first and foremost need, what players need to learn is to have intentions. Anything they do, and Paul McGuinness actually talked really nicely about this in, in his podcast on here, that, that you have to have a goal in mind or an outcome in mind when you do something. You cannot just go and kick the ball against the wall 10,000 times and have no goal in mind. You have, to, you have to have an intention. And obviously in football, it can be as easy as I want to score a goal. It's a 3v2 situation and we attack and I try to score a goal. That's my intention as an attacking unit. But it can be also quite advanced and complicated. So let's take a football technical example. We're building up against the team and we don't know if they press with one attacker or with two. And we have a back four in place. And one of our main principles for, for our build-up is that we want to create an overload in our back. So we want to build up with one more player than the other team is pressing us with. So the intention for my number six in midfield could be to understand what the opponent is doing, how they press us, and to either drop in between the center backs to have three players building up against two pressing strikers, or maybe to stay in the sixth space because they only press with one striker and the two defenders can deal with this one striker by themselves, also using the goalkeeper. So um, this could be my intention as well as a player in the game. And then certainly the team starts pressing with three players, and we haven't talked about this. So, so now as a number six, I need to think about how can we create this overload with, with uh, a team pressing us with three players? So maybe the, the fullbacks have to drop deeper and we have a flat back four and have four players building up against those three pressing players. And me as a number six, I have to stay in behind to be another option for, for a pass. And, and obviously this could be an intention, intention that I have in, in the game. And this is very context dependent, as we just said, because it depends on what the opponent is doing, which is not under my influence which is based on the game score, because obviously the pressing style of teams and the formation that the team uses that we play against can change throughout the game because they need to score a goal. Maybe they try to sit deeper and don't press us anymore because they are up 1-0 and they just want to get the result over the line. So um, having an intention is very, very important. And this is why we need context in any training scenario. 
And this is why I'm personally a big fan of game-realistic training environments, replicating scenarios and pictures that we see in games and really providing a context. So players have to constantly think about what they're doing and constantly perceive information that is somehow game-relevant. And then the next step, I think, is guiding attention. So once we know what our goal is, what outcome we want to have, now players need to pay attention to certain things. And what we know from, from science is that the attentional capacity is very limited. We often talk about the attentional spotlight. It's like a torch pretty much. And with this torch, I can only shed light on one, one thing at a time. So it's very limited. I cannot look at everything at once. I have to be very targeted at what I pay attention to. So when we talk about scanning, for example, with players, when they turn their head, obviously they, they shed the torch that they have, the attentional spotlight, onto certain information in a moment and then revert back to looking at the ball or whatever the teammate is doing. And um, as a coach, I have a great chance here to tap in and guide attention, to help players perceive more relevant information from the environment, what are the attackers doing, how they press, what what how wide are the two attackers pressing our back for, you know, like all these information bits that will determine what I can do as a number six to to build up and to to play through the through the attacking press, and um, I can do this obviously as a coach by asking questions, by putting challenges on the players, and 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 really, yeah, like like for example, I could say taking the the example that we just used, when our goalkeeper has the ball, can you as a number six check the number of opponents pressing us and create an overload for us? And if it's two players pressing, you may find a solution to drop in between. If it's one player pressing, you may stay deeper and, and be in the sixth space to be another passing angle option. If it's three players pressing, I may have to coach my fullbacks to drop in and, and have a flat back four to have an overload against three attacking pressers. So um, I have to really engage the player and, and shed their attention, their attention to spotlight onto the information that is relevant in that moment. And then um, I think... And this comes now to training design. When you understand that intentions are important, that attention is important, and that we constantly adapt in situations and we never repeat the same solution, I also understand that if we build up with three players in the back against those two players trying to press us, I will have different passing angles. So any pass I play, so any, any technical movement I execute will be different and will constantly change because the passing angles change, the passing distances change, the, the depth perception may change because now I have maybe the long ball as well on top that I integrate into training. So I have to constantly, and this is actually summarizing it now, I have to constantly create these game situations, the game context, and place players into it and make them problem solve and make them adapt what they do. Like I said, different passing angles, different passing distances. And then by doing this and doing this well, learning will be enforced. And over time, learning will happen and players will get better. And the cool thing about this, and this is why I'm a firm believer in this, the more realistic my training is and the more context from a game I recreate in training, the higher the chance of transfer is. And ultimately, that's our goal as a coach, right? We want to prepare players well for the next game, for, for their professional career, long-term maybe, and to perform better in games. And games are chaotic, they are messy, they have lots of problems to solve for players. So in training, I need to replicate this. I need players to find their own solutions, to problem solve, and to start perceiving information, shed their attention and spotlight on information that is relevant. This is why I'm very opposed to kicking a ball against the wall, because I think in a game, 
there's so much more to to just passing the ball than just actually passing the ball if if this makes sense so um this is i think a little bit of the science you need intentions you need to set goals you need to have outcomes in mind you know players need to pay attention to certain information and become better at this and then they need to problem solve and adapt their solutions their physical movements their passing options their passes themselves to the situation and i think again if you have a representative environment the chances for transferring what you learn in training to the game are just much much higher i think you've articulated it beautifully there and you also mentioned paul mcginnis his own quote was never kick a ball aimlessly um yeah. which which i remember writing down at the time and, and i've used it since it, it it makes perfect sense and and everything that you've articulated so well there takes me to the you know the perception decision and execution loop that the players are constantly in within a game it's constantly going on around them and and that perception side as you say might be the context of it's the it's the fifth minute and you're away from home and the game's a bit cagey at the moment or it's the 85th minute and you're one nil down or one nil up or pitch geography and, and things like that and I remember speaking about this perception, decision, and an action loop with um, Keith David, who I think you've done yeah. uh, quite yeah, yeah. A, lot, a lot of your work with, and, and this was back during lockdown, and and it just kept taking me back to to practice design, as you say, creating the moments for the players, um, so that they recognise these moments come come game time. I'd also add into that is is the, is the intensity of of the work. I think some of the more successful environments i've certainly been fortunate to work in or if i've been to visit them you if you if you approach the training ground whilst training is going on you get out of the car you can smell the session or hear the session straight away in the mm-hmm. intensity of it and i go back to the best players make the best decisions um they make the best decisions in those moments and they can make decisions quickly um they've got mm-hmm. then the the it's the technical qualities to be able to execute what yeah. it is exactly that they want to do and and with a real intensity in your team training, your group training, you have to think quicker, you have to think better, and you have to have the techniques to be able to um, carry out the actions that you're, that you're thinking about. And I completely agree with you that that environment for development is is so important, the overall environment, because you can do a lot. We've spoken already about doing a lot in, in isolation, haven't we, and, and the individual programmes, which are, which are you know, we're, we're both very biased, but are hugely important to, to the players' development. But then when it comes to the team stuff, that overall environment and intensity to even further that development as well is key. And then your practice design to support that and create those moments for those players. Now you've got development. A hundred percent. And, you know, when we are when we were off air, we talked about this question, is there best practice to player development, to individual development? And, and I really had to think about this. And I, I really do struggle with this term best practice because... The environment is so key. So if we think about um, why do some players perform really well in one club or, the, or under one manager, and then they transfer, and out of nowhere they don't perform anymore, and and they, you know, they don't score the goals that they did score before, it's actually still the same player. The player still has the same skill set. And if we look at the top level in professional football, all clubs are highly professionalized. You have great staff. You have great video analysis. You have nutritional. Yeah, the nutritional caretaking is is top class. So the clubs don't really different uh, are not really that different at the top level in terms of everything around it. But still, why do some players play so well in one club and don't really work well under a different manager? And um, I think this is where this individualized aspect and the context come in. You have to con- consider the context of the player, the individual constraints, 
just little things like maybe the player left his family where, where he lived before and his family didn't come with him. So he's just by himself in a hotel room. And it makes a big, big difference for this player to have his family around him. Or other things like the club itself, the history of the club, the demands of the fans, the the staffing structure within the club, which which may cater different differently to the player. Then the head coach, the voice of the head coach, the team talks of the head coach, the, the individualized approach of the staff. So lots of context-dependent factors that can determine whether an approach works for one player and not for another. And this is why I think... Um, there's not one best practice way of coaching, but there is certain principles. Like when we say we connect the player with the environment in training and we try to be representative in our training, we have a certain methodology of how we deal with individual players, how we how we psychologically accommodate what they do, how we, how we talk to them, how we communicate, how we create this relationship, what I mentioned very early on, which for me is a key one, how we develop relationships with players. If you have good processes in place there, then I think any player can develop in any environment, regardless of the club, the country, the, the league, whatever. But you have to have good processes in place and, and really look at the individual and understand the individual and build this relationship. So, so I think this is a very interesting topic when we talk about specialist coaching, because what is our big advantage? We, we only work with single players or small groups at a time, and we don't have to, to worry about 25 players in one session in one moment so we can be very very targeted and develop this connection with single players and also know what's going on in their lives outside of football and and you know know what their goals are and know what motivates them because obviously motivation is a, is a big psychological factor that differentiates between players so what motivates one player may not motivate another so i cannot tap into the same motivational aspect for different players because they all have different needs and wants for for the future and for what their career concerns really in terms of those processes then and you say like understanding the, the individual and, and building a relationship um to use two elite examples and, and you know you, you don't have to give any specific examples because i respect it it's it's personal to these individuals but in terms of your recent career history you've worked with two two goalkeepers that are now playing at a top top level uh, nick pope at newcastle in the england squad Jan sommer at gladbach who's now at Bayern munich obviously two two elite goalkeepers there how, how does that individual programme look at, at elite level when, when you're working with players that are at the top end of the game? Um, and then how do you think this would differ from the goalkeeper position to them working with players if you were to be doing that with the right backs or the forwards or whatever position outfield it might be? So I think, interestingly, there's two sides to the story. I think the process, how you individualise training, how you build an individualised performance plan or development plan, however you want to call this, is um, always the same, irregardless of league, of country, of level. So the process I go through with, with someone like Jan Sommer is exactly the same process that I've used for under-23 goalkeepers, for young professionals, for maybe under-16 goalkeepers that are obviously at a very different stage of their development. Um, so the process doesn't change. And I can briefly explain the process. For me, it often starts or always starts with some sort of analysis of the goalkeeper, which can be an analysis of the goals the goalkeeper conceded over a season or two. If there's any patterns, any areas, so talking about pitch location, from which opponents scored goals, if there was any decisions that the goalkeeper repeatedly made, which may not have been the most effective ones. If there's yeah any anything in regards to the goals that the goalkeeper conceded. 
positioning, decision-making, technical aspects possibly, and so forth. Then obviously I try to look at data, get like this big picture from, from a data analysis point of view in terms of how well do they defend their goal? How well defend do they defend the space, cross-taking and so forth? And how do they, how well do they support the game in possession? How, how are they with their feet? What are their passing ratios and so forth? Obviously talking about top level football now, we have a lot more video footage. We have a lot more data. So it's a lot easier to analyze professional goalkeepers compared to, to my under 16s goalkeeper. So um, the analysis will look different in terms of the detail, but I always try to start doing an analysis on the goalkeeper to just create this picture of what I think this goalkeeper can develop, what, what the potentials are and what this goalkeeper is also doing really, really well. And then in the next step, I try to take the goalkeeper on board and we watch some video clips. We discuss things. I ask the goalkeeper, like, what are your thoughts? What are your goals? What do you want to achieve? And, and this is obviously the start for developing this individual performance plan. And, and we come up with goals. We create certain training targets and, this analysis and the communication with the player is obviously based on me having a methodological framework, how I want to train, how development happens, different development stages, and the tactical-technical framework for goalkeeping now in this case, obviously, knowing the different parts of goalkeeping, the different demands of goalkeeping, and, and having the tactical-technical knowledge of this playing position. And obviously the club's playing profile for my position as well, because every club has a different profile for goalkeeper. So um, connecting the methods with the tactical technical framework and my analysis. So these three pillars are key to develop the individual performance plan. And then in an ideal world, the goalkeeper was a big part of this process. And I'm a big, big fan of including the goalkeeper because it's his or her career. It's, it's their development. And if they are not motivated to work on certain areas, but I think they are important to work on. It's still going to be very, very difficult for me to, to make them develop in this area because they don't want to work on this area. So I need to take them on board and, and develop this plan together with the player. And um, to come to the second part of your question, so so I've done this process with goalkeepers at very different levels, like Jan Sommer, like Nick Pope. We've done this with goalkeepers in the academy, in the transition space and so forth. And it was always the same process. And um, I think you can apply the same process to outfit players of different positions. What will obviously change is the tactical-technical framework, because now we're not talking about goalkeeper, we're talking about our right back. So his positional demands will be very different. His decision-making needs to be different because he sees different pictures in the game from a goalkeeper. He cannot use his hands, so very different playing position, obviously. So I have to change the tactical-technical framework. I think the methods stay the same, how players develop. This is very independent of the playing position or the sport even. And the analysis, how you evaluate the player, still is important, but will also change, obviously, because other data will become important. I look at different, different things towards how this player behaves and what we can change about it. But the process itself, I think, stays very, very similar. It's just the tactical, technical detail that would change and how I evaluate the player's performances, if that and makes sense. I assume you have a flexibility around things such as uh, personal qualities as well or or certain people's openness to data. Some people really like data and want to know all the stats of every single action that they do. Some don't particularly like it and they'll just look at, at the outcome. So is there a flexibility around your process with those those pieces as well? hundred percent. And I think you have to find a good balance. So the benefit of data obviously is 
that it's objective. If I analyze 50 goals of a goalkeeper, it is somehow objective because I code them and I evaluate them, but it's also qualitative, right? That I put my opinion in. He, he could save this one or he has no chance on that goal because that strike is just too good top corner. So there is a subjective element to, to my analysis. So this is why I like to combine my analysis with the objective data to, to get a more holistic picture of, of what's actually happening. And if they two, if those two pictures don't work together, I have to really rethink like what I've done because normally the data should somehow show what, what my analysis shows as well. So um, you have to be very mindful of how much you use it, when you use it, and also then in the next step, how much you actually show to the player. Because I think a lot of the work we do, and this obviously for any coach listening, if, if we are a coaching staff and we talk about the next opponent, how many hours of video do we watch from that opponent? And how many minutes of those hours that we spend do we actually show the team in the end of the day? Sometimes it's only 15 minutes of video analysis with the team. And we've sat down for two days and watched six or seven hours of opponent footage. Same goes, I think, for the individual plans. I may watch a lot of goalkeeping videos on this particular goalkeeper training videos. I may look at a lot of data, but in the end of the day, I really have to take only a small fraction of this and, and show this to the goalkeeper. And then also look at the individual. Some goalkeepers may hate data, so I may not show them any data. Some may be very interested in data, so I can maybe use a little bit more here and there to get them motivated to work on certain areas. And again, this comes back to the relationship. As the better I know my players, the, the better the relationship with my players is, the, the better I can target my, my intervention towards them. So I think this is always the key one. If you build good relationships with players and you are an all right coach, I think you're still a very, very good coach. If you build very bad relationships with your players, but you may be the best expert at technical, technical bits, you're still probably not the best coach because you don't get players to to really listen and you don't have this interaction with the players. So I think the relationship and the individualization of what you do is very important there. One, one question that your answers there have just, just thrown up to me is, <clears throat> it's, it's very easy, I think, to... You talk about players in that transition space, and I'm, I'm talking from my own personal experience. I think it's, it's very easy to find a a centre forward, for example, that might have similar characteristics in terms of physicality, in terms of pace, in terms of technical attributes to show a 19-year-old striker that someone that's playing at the top. And if you've got someone that, you know, plays like, I don't know, Haaland, well, it might be a bad example. If he plays like Haaland, he wouldn't be he's still transitioning. He'd be there already. But, um, you know, with similar attributes to that, it's very easy to show a developing player. Let's look at what Haaland does in these moments. We've name-dropped two top, top goalkeepers there, Pope and Sommer. In your experiences, how open have you found those elite players to be to looking at other goalkeepers as well and in and, and the ways that, that other elite players do it? I can imagine some are very open to it. I can imagine some might see it as an insult that why are we looking at him when I'm just as good and I'm, I'm at his level or in their perception yeah. better. But what's your experiences of that? So um, if you actually mentioned two goalkeepers there that couldn't be more different from a physical profile, right? With with Nick Pope being a very tall goalkeeper and then Jan Sommer being a smaller goalkeeper and having different playing styles. But um, I think, and this is my experience, which I'm very fortunate to have made and very happy about is that the top-level goalkeepers, and Nick Pope arguably is one of the best goalkeepers in the world, and Jan Sommer as well. So we have two world-class goalkeepers there. 
And what was the common ground between those two was their openness to learn, their openness to to improve, to train, their the interest in in you know different input from coaches in in just getting better at the end of the day and and improving. And um the same goes for for someone that I really enjoyed working with. It wasn't too long, which was Joe Hart. He was with us in Burnley for a few weeks and then he went to to play for Tottenham at that time. And um, I had lots of great conversations with Joe about different areas of, of goalkeeping, of psychology, sometimes even away from football. And um, he also 100% fits in this category of, of always being willing to get better and always being open-minded to new ideas. And and um, I think this is what probably sums up the top, top players. Same for outfield players, the, the Ronaldos or Messis in the world. They're always trying to improve somehow. And, and obviously... The better they get, the more experienced, more selective they can be of of what will make them better, and they they don't have to accept any idea anymore because they know what works for them and what doesn't. But I would argue that the top players are always still open to to receive this sort of information and then make their own decisions whether they want to try this or that, and whether they give it a go. And and just this mindset, I think, is is key and describes the world class players very very well independent of physical characteristics, tactical playing style of the manager, technical abilities, position, whatever. I think these are all individual factors, but the mindset is is very, very similar across those players. You've spoken a lot, probably in, in almost every every answer of, of the different tangents and topics that we've covered today. A lot of time you've come back to connection, you've come back to trust, you've come back to transparency obviously underpinned by a sound, you know, technical understanding to be able to improve the player. If the player thinks you don't know what you're on about, you don't get the connection, you don't get the trust. So so the understanding has to underpin it. Um, but I know you've done a lot of work and, and you've got a lot of your kind of future projects looking around the art of science and coaching and how you become your best version of a coach as well. And I know this is something that you're very keen to to talk on as well. If you can Elaborate a little bit on on where your your future of, of your research and your your app your applied learnings is going to go. Yeah, thanks thanks for for talking about this part. So, um, what we've tried to do. So this is obviously not just me. This is my colleagues like Keith Davids from Sheffield Hallam University, like Sarah Kate Miller from from New Zealand from university. There's uh, always great colleagues that that work together with me that are as interested in coaching science as as I am. So uh, at the moment, we work on, on very different projects. So for one, we look at personality profiling of goalkeepers, which is a quite cool, cool study because we look at whether professional goalkeepers have a different personality profile from amateur goalkeepers. So if there's any personality traits that make them come through in the end of the day and give them a better chance to become professionals, which obviously for recruitment and, and scouting purposes could be an interesting one. Then another study assesses training landscapes and measures training complexity. Because again, if, if we work with two or three players, it's going to be hard to replicate an 11 v 11 football game. So we can only take snippets of the game and, and little pieces of scenarios and try to replicate this context in this way. And, and we try to really statistically assess at the moment how we can measure the complexity of our training and the representativeness and to have some sort of scale of how to do this. And then another topic, which um, there's actually two two more topics that that are quite interesting at the moment because one is um, this idea of working transdisciplinarily as a staff to not just work in silos. So the SNC department does the SNC part of the goalkeeping development, 
the goalkeeping coach does the tactical technical development, the head coach does the overall team tactics. So we try to look a lot about how in an ideal world, how you can integrate the different departments. And the SNC coach may have a say in my goalkeeper training on the pitch. I have a say in what we do in the gym with the goalkeepers. And, and then obviously this idea of periodization, how can the physical periodization of our training the long-term physical development be connected to the long-term tactical technical development of the goalkeeper and and to merge these into like one framework really and because all these factors obviously concern coaching and and how we as coaches work what our processes are for training design um i got a lot into this area of coach education and and this idea of coach learning so what we said do we learn to coach or do we coach to learn and and what's the connection between both and Recently, in some congresses, I started trying to go very different about uh, presenting. Because usually, you know, these congresses where there's a speaker up top and he's presenting what, what this person is doing. And it's just a one-way street. It's just one person presenting, the others are listening and absorbing, and then the next speaker comes and the next speaker. So I try to, and this is just an experiment, I try to rethink this approach and make it a lot more interactive and start going this route of coaches reflecting on themselves within one of these presentations. And um, for that, I've developed a framework for coach education. And the main question there was, what does the ideal, the best coach in the world all have to do? And obviously there's lots of parts to our job as a coach, right? It's, it's not just merely designing a training session. There's psychology involved. There's communication. There's in, in academy football, especially pedagogy involved. There is, analysis dealing with technology involved and if you imagine like a blank piece of paper and in the middle of this piece of paper there's a red box which says training design obviously training designs are a key part of our work right if we have good training designs we we drive player development so in the middle of this white piece of paper there's a red box with training design key tasks of what we do as coaches but then there's all these other areas that i try to to make coaches reflect on like how, how good are you at analyzing game sequences? How good are you at using data? How good are you at having scouting processes? Then how clear are you? This is the second pillar. How clear are you on your own playing philosophy, on your own positional demands for the players? So this tactical, technical framework that I talked about. How clear are you on, on what you expect from top-level players in this position or that position? The third pillar concerns methods and planning. How, how well developed as a coach are you at understanding different player development stages at you're really in a, in a way having learning and training principles in place at documenting training at periodizing training over different time scales and um, obviously these are more football specific areas that connect a lot to to what we talked about through here and then if we again think about the red box saying training design in the middle from the bottom, there's another big box, which is called psychology, communication, and coaching methods. And this is a topic that I'm very, very interested in at the moment, because I do think that in coaching courses, in, in congresses, at congresses, we talk a lot about training design, we talk a lot about analysis, but how often do we really talk about coaching? How, how do we coach? What do we say? When do we say things to players? Maybe when do we not say things to players? And how do we talk to players? You know, how do we phrase questions? And and I think this is a very, very interesting topic. And maybe to conclude this, I, I brought one example. And this is, I think, very relevant for us as individual coaches. 
two scenarios how you could coach a player. One scenario in the classroom where you do an individual video session. So you don't have immediate time constraints. You have some time. You have some one-on-one -on -one time with the player. And another scenario on the football pitch during training where it's more coaching on the run. So um, I've tried to really develop myself and it's it's really ongoing. I, I still make lots of mistakes here and I really try to develop. So when we're in the classroom with this one player, I think we have a very good chance to be very integrated, very interactive, and it can be a very good two-way street of communication. So what I've tried to do is, first of all, when we re let's say we rewatch the last game and we watch some clips from the last game and I have some points that I want to make as a coach where I think this player can develop. And uh, the first thing I do then is to, to find out which communication level the player is at. Is the player rather rational and calm down and quite objective on what he sees? Or is he rather emotional, saying like, oh, the referee or, you know, the opponent, the pitch was terrible. This was why I couldn't pass this ball or something. So this is my first task as a coach in this video session where I have time to find out which communication level the player is at. And if the player is rational, I can be quite, quite obviously going towards the, the topics that I want to discuss. If he's very emotional, I need to dig, dig a lot, lot deeper. And there's four layers to this. So let's say the player is emotional. The first one I, I really need to ask and find out by asking questions, what are the emotions the player has? Is the player happy versus sad? Is the player confident or has self-doubt? Is the player excited about what, what he or she sees? Or is there more shame included in the video sequences? So what are the emotions and how strong are they? And then obviously in the next step, when I understand the emotions of the player, I really need to start understanding what actually happened from the player's point of view. Why did the player develop those emotions that, that the player is talking about and how he's expressing himself? So what actually happened in the game situation? Because I think this is a common mistake that we coaches often do. We have the bird's eye perspective from the top and we see passing windows, we see spaces quite easily. And then we press start and stop when we do video analysis. And of course, if I press start and stop and there's a huge space in behind the back, backline of the opponent, I can say, ah, oh, why don't you just kick it in there? It's like huge space. They stepped up so high. But obviously in a game where you're under pressure, you may be fatigued, you may be a little bit injured or something. Because we, we had this the other day, our, our player couldn't use his left foot anymore because there was an injury coming up. Then he had to get subbed off after time. If I don't know this, I would tell him, like, why don't you use your left foot to pass this ball? It's an easy pass, 10 yards. And then he would tell me, but I was injured. I couldn't use my left leg anymore in this moment. And two minutes later, they had to sub me off. So I really have to find out from the player's view what happened. What did, did make the player so emotional? And then obviously try to calm the player down and try to go into possible options. What could you have done instead of what you did? Maybe why was this not the best decision? Why, why could have been, could there have been a different decision? And to really go into the why. And along this conversation with the player, which again is very interactive, I think you, you have a good chance to calm the player down, to be quite productive in a way that you talk about what's actually happening instead of what did you feel in this moment. And then in the end of the day, you can look at what would have the best player in the world have done in this moment. What would, um, maybe if you are the best player in the world, the other side, I learned a lot from the players I worked with because they were so smart about what they did and see in the game that I had a different opinion watching the video from what they told me. And I had to say in the end, oh, you're absolutely right. Your perception in the game was much better than my perception from the video. 
there was um one, this is a cool example there was one sequence when we played Bayern Munich last year and Kingsley Coman was breaking through on the side going towards the goal line for like a 90 degree cutback pass and um for goalkeepers for for those that are not goalkeeping coaches Sometimes or often when you get into this cutback position as a striker, we want our goalkeepers to come towards the first post and to really try to deal with this cutbacks going cutback going through the six-yard box. And um, this was one of these situations where as a coach, when I watched the video first, my first impression was, oh yeah, he needs to come towards the first post now and close the space. Jan Sommer, on the other hand, did the opposite. He dropped more into the middle and turned his body on orientation towards the penalty spot. And First, first uh, when I when I watched the video, I thought like, oh, why is he doing this? This doesn't really make sense from my perspective. And then we came in, we had this video chat and started talking about what the player sees. And he was very rational, so we didn't have to talk about emotions in that moment. It was more the analysis of the situation. And he started explaining. He said, first of all, from our video analysis in the week before, I knew that Bayern is playing a lot of cutback passes to the penalty area. And um, second of all, there was a player running towards the first post area and two defenders were with him. Two of our defenders followed him. So he said, if those two defenders cannot control him, like I, I can't control the whole area. I, like, I have to trust my defenders and they have to deal with this player. So I thought I don't have to close the first post area because those two defenders are tracking that attacker that goes into that space. Plus, this was the, the amazing bit of information. I saw that the attacker is going towards the first post, so actually away from goal, because it was a dummy run. He tried to drag the defenders away from our goal, because now with this pass to the penalty spot, no defender was in, in front of the goal anymore, and there was an open shot towards the goal. So I thought I might as well stay more centrally. So if he plays that cutback pass to the penalty area, I'm in a better position to defend a shot on goal, because because obviously I have a better better time frame to get to where I want to get in terms of my position. And this was just an amazing experience for me. This this discussion, because me as a coach again, looking at the video and and start and stop, thinking, yeah, this is a very clear scenario from the tactical perspective. And then talking to the player and gaining his feedback on what he perceived in the game, which in the end the quality of his perception was much higher than my perception. Was was amazing for me to see like what a world class goalkeeper perceives in a game and how he's changing his decisions and his positioning based on the references. And this comes back to representative training design because he learned this through game experience over years, obviously, but also through training these sorts of situations and understanding defenders' movements, attackers' movements, and obviously the strategy that other teams may follow, like playing this cutback pass to the penalty area. So, um, long story short. This could be one example of how you deal with a player that is very emotional inside the classroom, make it very interactive and go very deep on the level of understanding where the player is coming from as a coach. Now the opposite, and, and this can maybe conclude this, coaching on the run during training. Um, I think less is more is a big one. We talked about the attentional spotlight and the working memory being very limited. You cannot remember a thousand things. You are very limited. And lots of things are going on in the game, obviously. So um, less is more when I talk on the pitch during, during training sessions. And I only want to guide the torch, the spotlight, to certain information and keep this very limited in training. And um, when, when we developed this module coaching, which is, again, I'm a big fan of thinking about how we coach as well, 
when we developed this and I, I wrote a big module for the German Federation for the coaching education, where we talk a lot about this topic. How do you actually coach? What coaching methods are there? Video analysis, analogy learning, question and answer approach, direct instructive feedback and so forth. We, we set up this rule that when we coach in a session, and especially in our context of individual coaching, we come up with three focus areas for that session. For goalkeeper, it could be positioning, decision-making in one-we-one situations and possibly communication with defenders. So this could be my three areas of coaching for this training session on the pitch. And when I go in to, to coach during the session, I'm only allowed to say one thing to the player, to give one piece of, of feedback to the player. So instead of telling the player, oh, look at your position, make sure you talk to the defenders and you tell them this and that. And also your decision, maybe you need to go more and put more pressure on the attacker to, to put him under pressure to finish. I give him three pieces of information and the chance that all three get there and the player understands them and can actually transfer them to the next to the next training moment are very, very limited. Because again, the attention is limited, the, the memory is limited and so forth. So I only try to give one piece of information to the player. So less is more is really the key. And um, to conclude this, what I found really interesting and, and really helpful for me as a coach, when I plan a session, thinking about the red box on the blank piece of paper with training design again, obviously I plan the exercises that we do, the, the game scenario that we work based on, but I also started planning my coaching. What do I actually want to say? What sorts of questions do I want to ask? And also think about when do I want to ask these questions? During the sessions, do I make little breaks in between to, to maybe have a conversation with the player and so forth? And to, to really take my coaching onto another level, along with obviously the training design, which is so, so important. So um, this, this is maybe one that sparks some thinking for, for listeners as well, to, to not only think about training design and planning training sessions and analyzing training and game videos, also thinking about coaching and communication with the players and how you coach, when you coach, what you coach really. It's, it's an amazingly deep answer that I've really enjoyed listening to it. I, the, the bit about just, just one bit of information to the player when you're coaching on the run, you know, straight away you pick out the one bit that you think is the most important. So you, you filter it. Um, so if it's the most important, it's the right thing to deliver. And and the example that you gave around Jan Sommer with the, with the video, I thought was brilliant. I, I always give the caveat to the players that I'm working with, you know, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world for me to sit here and to press the space bar and stop it and start it and then maybe go back five seconds on huddle and I want to have a little look at this and and check the and, and then I'll come to my decision. It's those in the moment decisions that makes them good players and, and straight away that takes us back to the to the practice design, to the perception, the decision, the execution loop and and then the education in those key moments when you you're debriefing with your players. So um you a really deep answer, but I can see that every thought process that you've got there takes you back to the same um, understanding of, of what how players develop, how they learn, and, and I can see how everything ties in through all of the answers that you're given there. Yeah, I think this is a big point to make that um, coach learning is also not a one-way street in this traditional view that the coach needs to know everything and we are there to tell the player what to do and how to do it because we are the coaches. Is um, Definitely not not the best version of, of doing it because, again, working with these world-class players like Jan Sommer, who is an absolute brilliant professional and very, very game intelligent, 
I learned as much from from him as he hopefully learned from me. Probably I learned more from him than he learned from me. So so I think taking this perspective on on how you deal with players is is a very very fruitful one for for any coach as well. No, it's been it's been brilliant. I, I've you know I said at the start that I was particularly looking forward to this conversation because of my own personal bias and and certain crossovers we've got in our own kind of it rolls but i've thoroughly enjoyed it i've really enjoyed it i'm i'm hoping that the people that get to listen to it will will enjoy it as well um if if people want to wanted to reach out to you to you know pick your brains on certain things that you've spoke about today or any other things that thoughts that you've provoked in their minds what's the best way for people to to do that i think the best way is to email me so my my email is fabian.otter at gmx.de so that probably would be all of linkedin or something like social networks like that instagram linkedin so um yeah anyone that is interested to to, to talk more about this or maybe to get some readings as well because a lot of what we talked about is obviously pub publicly published in in journal articles and, and you can just openly access them online so so i'm happy to share those as well which which are very transferable to coaching again because that's the big mission right to make it applicable to to the coaching world the science and not keep it abstract i i don't know your schedule and i don't know um gladbach's end of season dates but you know if if you're free and you're available and your schedule allows you we'd love to see you at the um the soccer science conference which is on the 22nd of may at st george's park uh, which is a Monday in, in a couple of months' time. But if if we don't see you there, hopefully we'll get you along at some point in the future. Because I think there's, you know, I I always use this phrase at the end of every episode with with every podcast guest we've had on. We, it feels like we've only scratched the surface, and there's so much more that we can delve into. But um, I've really enjoyed it. It's been been a fascinating conversation. So thank you, thank you so much for giving up your time today. And and I'm sure the people that listen to it will take a lot from it as well. I thank you very much, and and I can only say that all the other podcasts that I've listened to from from Soccer Science are amazing. Like we talked about the Paul McInnes one, and um, very very great experts on there. So very enjoyable, and thanks for the invitation to be part of this. No, brilliant. I'm just looking out of my my window at the moment as I I've got a day off, and there's an individual session out there at the moment with a with a nine year old that's uh, that's doing some shooting practice. So I think I'm going to be uh, called to go to work any moment. So uh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. my next hour or so. But no, thank you. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Much appreciated. Take care. Speak soon.